And, uh, and so Connor's been like witnessing to his friend, Stuart, all these months and years. And uh, they both grew up in the church, but they kind of went their own way. And then Connor eventually came back to Christ, and Stuart was still kind of lost at this point. And uh, anyway, so I saw during the weekend that Stuart began, he was asking lots of questions. He's observing us do these things, these spiritual things. He has some background in church, but he doesn't really, he's not living it. He's not, wouldn't call himself a follower of Christ. And he is someone that would sit with us at meals, and he was engaging in questions. He was talking about the faith and asking questions. And I wasn't one of the primary ones talking to him, but others, I've seen others do that, do that with him. And kind of answering some of his curious questions that he had about the Christian faith. And then as the weekend began to progress, you could see something just begin to shift in him as the weekend uh, progressed into Saturday evening. And then um, I think some guys have been talking with him about the faith throughout the weekend. And, and so suddenly on Saturday evening, we're having this little session together. And the guy leading the thing says, Stuart, do you want to share with the guys? And, and so Stuart gets in front of us. And, and Stuart, he's a very raw thinker. Like, he just kind of puts it out there and lets you sort of deal with it. And he just begins sharing his story. And his story is, grew up in a wealthy family, went to church. About age 13, he just was like, why am I doing this? This is stupid. I don't want to go to church anymore. I don't even believe this stuff. Checked out of church, stayed home, and just messed around with video games and stuff like that. And really had no faith to speak of. Gets into late high school, early college. Um, I think he had a... I think he told us that he had um, marijuana possession at one point, went to jail for a couple nights, uh, then got out. Then a couple years later, he gets a DUI, crashes into a car. Um, no one gets hurt, but like, he's not living in a real healthy way. And, uh, and he said that both times he went into a jail situation, both, these are different environments, someone had written on like one of the beds in the jail, Jesus loves you. Both times he went in, he saw this, like, little sign, you know, and he just thought, okay, whatever, whatever, whatever that's about. And then, um, and then his friend Connor had started, had asked him to start reading the Screwtape Letters, which is by C.S. Lewis and is about um, spiritual warfare. And so he's reading this book as we are doing this retreat. And he's also doing the same things that we're doing on the retreat, like going to go ahead and do prayer and, and read scripture and stuff like that. And, uh, and he just begins to describe his time on this retreat as he just felt all this darkness. Like he was laying awake at night in his room at this retreat, couldn't sleep, like would have these crying fits. And, and we see that as like God's pursuing him, you know. And, um, and he's reading this book and also reading the words of God as well. And, uh, and then he just tells us um, that through all these experiences and the things he's been thinking through and praying through, um, he just said in that moment, he says, listen, I'm ready to start following Jesus. And so he, uh, we, got, we gathered around this guy, and it was the coolest thing, because like here, this guy wasn't even here for this purpose, to, to go on this retreat. He was just there for the video stuff. And, um, and in many tears, him and all of us, we watched this guy just give his life to Jesus there in that moment. And uh, it was really just powerful, and, and, um, and it's a really cool, powerful story of I tell it now because I think it's so easy for us to have these questions, these curiosity questions, right? Like he had many of those. And, but at some point, you might get those questions answered, but at some point, you got to surrender. And, and you need to say to Jesus, like, I want a relationship with you. And so we don't want this series to be like just a, yeah, we answered your questions, 
Because if all it is, it's just like you get your curiosity questions answered and that's it, and there's no relationship, that doesn't lead to anything else, then this whole thing's been pointless. And, uh, and so we're going to dive into some questions today, um, as we have the last few weeks, but we want to make sure you know that the whole point of this thing is to maybe remove a barrier that you might see as a barrier to you coming to faith in Christ. And that's why we're doing a series like this. It's for no other reason. And, uh, and so just keep that in mind as, you, as we talk about these uh, questions today. So um, what I've asked our panel to do here is uh, we have Catherine. woohoo! We have Chris. Welcome, Chris. We have Leah. And we have Matt Murdock on the end. And uh, so I've asked each one of them. They got a little timer because they're, they're going to answer each one in three minutes or less. All right? So they're going to time themselves. And, and we need like an hourglass where you just go, all right, here's your time, you know. Uh, but they're going to they're gonna track that. So uh, here's the first question. I think we're going in this order. Um, uh, let's see. First question is, how do we know if we are living in the end times? Catherine, this one's yours. I love this question. Um, Okay, so there's a summary of what the end times look like in 1 Timothy chapter 3. I won't read it because I don't have time. But um, in a word or two, we're, according to how Scripture describes it, we're already in the end times. But when people ask that question, they're not asking about the era we're living in. They're asking, when is Jesus coming back and how long do I have, right? Um, you won't know. Scripture is very clear in Matthew 24, the words of Christ himself. Um, he says that no one knows when the end will be. Not even I know here on earth, only God, only God the Father. And 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2 says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So we try to interpret all these signs, or at least people on the internet do, and it's pretty fruitless. Our responsibility as Christians is to be prepared spiritually. Pursue godliness now, not later. There's a parable that Jesus shares uh, in Matthew 25. It's called the parable of the ten virgins. Just to summarize, five young women are prepared and have oil in their lamps when the bridegroom comes, and five do not. And the five with oil go into the wedding feast. Live godly lives now. Um and live in faith. Sometimes when people ask this question, they don't know that the Bible says all that, or they are asking it as a smokescreen for another question, which I think is more core. It's, should I be afraid? And the answer is no, absolutely not. Why would you be afraid of the Lord your God coming to rescue his people, you, from their bondage to sin? I say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Thank you. Yes. Next question is to Chris. So how do we know true Christians cannot lose their salvation? Uh, so I really like this question, especially this key word here, uh, true. Uh, because oftentimes we'll see that somebody's saying, oh, you know, I, I, I'm leaving the faith. Or uh, what's the popular word? Deconstructing. And we see a lot of people leave the faith. But there's this key word here in the question is true. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go straight to John 6, verse 37. I can actually read this verse and just be like, okay, that's it. I'm not going to, that's all I'm going to say. 
So John 6.37 says, Everyone the Father gives, uh, everyone the Father gives to, well, I'm, I'm missing my space. There we go. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. I mean, we can stop it right there and just say that's the answer to your question is John 6.37, is that Jesus says, whoever the Father gives him, he's not going to lose, he's not going to leave, he's not going to let go. Um, but knowing me, and I, I'm pretty sure Dave said to use a timer because he knows I like to go over time. So I got two minutes left. So we're going to do a little bit more. We're going to look at... Uh, we're going to look at Romans 8, because I believe Romans 8 answers a lot of our questions when it comes to, uh, can I lose my salvation? How does my salvation work? Uh, you know, honestly, when we ask this question, we are asking if we are going to lose our salvation. But we should actually change this instead of asking, can I lose my salvation? It's, God is going to keep your salvation. It's not a question of whether you are going to lose it, but God's going to keep your salvation. So looking at Romans here real quick, Romans 8, 29 and 30. Uh, Romans 8, 29 and 30 says, For those who he foreknew, this is God, foreknew you, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So there's this, this what they call this chain of salvation here. Paul is talking about this chain of salvation, and he's using it in the past tense, but he's writing a letter to somebody in the future. So why is he talking in the past tense? He's doing that because this is a guarantee. He's saying, I am so guaranteed of this outcome and of this that I'm going to write to you in the past tense. How do we know he's saying it's a guarantee? Well, if we, all, if we jump all the way down to chapter 8, verse 38 and 39, he says, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So I could say that out of those two passages, just looking at those, we can see, well, we're being given a guarantee that the true believer cannot and will not lose their salvation, but God himself will keep that person secure. Thank you, Chris. Next one, Celia. Is baptism a requirement for salvation? Is it on? He literally had a second to spare. So I want to start this with a few verses about what the Bible says about baptism. Acts 2.38 says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Mark 1.4 calls for a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So it's telling us that this change of heart is what makes baptism desirable. So Chris just kind of talked about that a little bit. I think the question is really, when does our salvation, when is it secured? And so is it during ba before baptism, during baptism, or after baptism? I'm taking the argument that it is before baptism because I believe that's what Jesus believed. So Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from you, but is a gift from God. It is not from work so that no one may boast. Why I believe it is what Jesus believes is because he tells the thief on the cross with him, today you will be with me in glory, after he makes the profession of faith in Christ. There's nothing that that thief, the criminal, could have done from the cross until he went into glory. He was being crucified alongside with Jesus. So it's, it's that profession of faith, you are the Christ, that is what gained him access into heaven because he trusted in Christ for his salvation. 
Baptism is often a first step of a believer when they become a Christian, but it is not the first step. And so it's something that we see usually early on in our faith walk, but it's the public declaration of what Christ has done in your heart when your salvation was secured. We use this expression a lot, so if you've been here, you've heard it, but it's like a wedding ring, which I wore today specifically because I knew I was going to use this analogy because I never wear my wedding ring. So the, the ring that I wear, I, I don't, he always does, I never wear it. So he, the ring is an outward expression of my commitment to Christ, or to Chris. I did that too before. So <laughs> my commitment to Chris is represented by my wedding ring, but regardless of if my ring is there or not, I am committed to him. Um, so short answer, baptism is not required. Baptism is super important. We have a churchwide baptism coming up the last Sunday of this month, and I think that everyone should come. Um, it gives opportunities for us who are your brothers and sisters to welcome you home and to celebrate with you. If you are not a believer, I think it is super powerful to hear what Christ has done um, to the hearts of the people that are around you. And I think it's, I love hearing it from y'all's mouths. Um, it's super encouraging to those of us that have kind of been in the faith walk for a long time to be invigorated by what Christ is doing to you guys, um, through you guys. So shameless plug. April 30th, Creekside, be there. Thank you. All right, Matt's next. And the question is, how do we deal with irrational, quick-to-anger people? Run away. <laughs> no, I, <laughs> no, no um, I have lived with irrational, quick-to-anger people. Um, I deal with them on a daily basis at work. Um, and it... It's, it's one of those things that, and it's important to note, irrational angry. Uh, there's a di very difference between, hey, I'm so sorry I hit your dog. I ran over your dog with my car. You're angry at me. Like, calm down. No, like that, that's rational angry. Irrational anger is quite different. Um, but I, I think it's important to, uh, to our response to irrational angry people, we don't want to the old adage is like fight fire with fire. Absolutely not. Um, we're called to be like Christ. We're called to be like God. Uh, Psalms 86 verse 15 said, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Um, he, it, and he continues in Proverbs 15 verse 1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Uh, we're in a culture now that uh, when someone comes at you, you want to come back and quote unquote destroy them. Like, it, uh, I totally own them on that argument. Uh, no, uh, irrational, quick to angry people uh, are just that, irrational. Uh, find your rationality in the gospel and what Christ did for you and respond accordingly. Thank you. All right, back to Catherine. So. This question really could have been a sermon. We really didn't get a chance to fit it in. So this, in three minutes, she's going to give a sermon on how do we glorify God through suffering. Game on. Right. Okay. I'm going to answer this from exactly one and a half perspectives just to save time. Okay. But in recent, recent history, past 50, 60 years or so, the evangelical church has tried to portray godly suffering as just pretending that nothing is going wrong. Okay, that's, that's really silly, and it's also dangerous. Um, I don't think that that has precedent 
in Scripture. Let's dismantle that right now. Um, it's okay to feel pain. It's okay to feel angry. And it's okay to tell God about it. It really is. But give credit where credit is due. Okay, a couple of scriptures for you. Ecclesiastes 7.14 and Job 2, 9 and 10. God is in charge. God is supreme ruler and sovereign over all things. This is also reflected in the Psalms of Lament. There are too many to, to state here, but I'm going to give you about four of them. Psalm 22, Psalm 6, Psalm 38, and Psalm 56. A common theme in all of these is that although the authors are explicit in describing their pain, they get pretty graphic sometimes. Nevertheless, they repeat their trust in God and acknowledge him as king in their life, and then they call for his help. They call him a helper. So we start to sin in suffering when we question God's attributes or start to tell him in our hearts that we deserve better, and we throw our tantrums, and we paint God as an absent father or as some sadistic cosmic goblin who enjoys our pain. These caricatures these caricatures are not our God. They, they do not describe him. So in your suffering, don't forget. Don't forget to profess, know, and remember that God is just, that he is good, and that suffering is not meaningless when Christ is at the helm of your life, as evidenced by Romans 5. Go look it up. It's really good stuff. Personally, in dark times, I find it helpful to thank God for what he has given me. It's called counting your blessings. It's really old school, but it's very helpful. 1 Thessalonians 5 says that we are to give thanks in all circumstances, even hard ones. Um, I thank him for special grace, that he chose me and that he is for me even in, in the moments I don't feel like it. I thank him for common grace. I thank him for people who are in my life who are help, helping me to feel better and are helping to be a safe and righteous comfort and I thank him for spiritual promises that he hears me, that he sustains me, and that he works things out for ultimate good. Thank you. That was better than the 30-minute sermon I would have preached on that topic, so thank you for that. Uh, next is Chris. How do I get motivated to read my Bible? Uh, so I think that... When we look at this question, I think we're actually asking a different question. I think oftentimes when we ask, how do we get motivated to read the Bible, we're asking, how do I feel like reading the Bible? Uh, and that's actually a really dangerous place to be because oftentimes we don't feel like much or our feelings change so often. Um, somebody uh, had a quote earlier this week that I saw on Twitter. This guy's not a believer. And he says that about motivation, he says, we don't need motivation to take action. We need to take action to get motivated. So he's kind of going after how we feel about things, that it's like, look, you can't just sit around and wait for you to feel like doing something. You have to actually go out and do something. And scripture often talks about being disciplined or disciplining ourselves to do something. Uh, the first thing I think we need to understand is that when it comes to reading scripture, there's two things that are going against us when we're trying to read scripture. Uh, the first one is our own sinful desires. 
uh, Romans 7, 21 through 23, talks about us fighting against our own sinful nature. And in Romans, the whole Romans chapter 7, Paul is talking about he doesn't do the things that he wants to do. Uh, and that is his sinful nature fighting against him and needing to and wanting to do that. Uh, Jeremiah tells us that our hearts are wicked and deceitful above all else. So if I sit around and wait to do something until I feel like it, I'm not really going to do it because I'm going to convince myself to do something else. Um, 2 Timothy 2.15 uh, tells us here, so this is Paul writing to Timothy, and he's telling, talking to Timothy about here's how you should train up your church. Uh, and he says, Be diligent to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, correctly teaching the word of truth. And so he's telling him, hey, be diligent in getting in Scripture. So how are ways that we can be diligent in getting into Scripture? Well, first of all, we need to get rid of distractions. And what are our distractions? Well, the first distraction is your phone. Put it on the other side of the room. Put it on focus mode. Turn it off. Get rid of it some way, somehow, because it's just going to distract you. Other things that distract us, TV, social media, games, whatever else. Second of all, I think this is really important. Get a physical Bible. If you do not have a physical Bible, ask your parents if they can get you a physical Bible. If they can't get you a physical Bible, come and talk to me. We will get you a physical Bible. Uh, Other than that, 15 seconds real quick. Uh, Set aside time. So whether it's before you go to bed, after you go to bed, you can do that. Set aside a a specific time to be able to get into the Word. If you have a hard time reading, uh, set a timer. Five minutes, ten minutes, uh, do something like that to where you can make a habit of getting into this. Uh, If you have a hard time reading just in general, then you can download an app on your phone. This, you can use your phone, download an app, have the app read to you, but set your phone on either focus mode, do not disturb, get rid of the distractions. I've never heard Chris talk so fast. Thank you, Chris. All right. Now to Leah. How do we handle the competitive nature that comes with success? Okay, so I don't think that competitions are success or success are evil in and of themselves, but they can become sinful. So the question is, how can we reconcile the call to value others ahead of ourselves, yet enjoy a competing environment where we strive to get ahead of others to win? My mind goes to two verses. So Colossians 3, 23 through 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So we can use competition for self-glorification, for self-promotion, for self-gratification, or we can use it to glorify Christ. A filter for your heart in competition comes from a verse you're likely familiar with, but probably not in this context. Micah 6, 8. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your Lord. So is your competition marked by you being just in your character without compromising your reputation or your identity? Do you show mercy to yourself and others in winning and in losing? And what about your humility and self-control despite what the scoreboard or your class rank says? So the Gospel Coalition said we cannot be exempt from competition, but the Gospel radically shapes how we compete. Someone I know recently became part of the 2% of high school athletes that is going to play basketball at a D1 level. So he made a statement on Instagram First of all, I want to thank God. That's normal. Even nominal Christians do that. But he went on to say, 
He thanked God for his health, his athleticism, his family, his work ethic, and his redemption for being, being bought from a slave to himself. He said he was committing himself to university for the next four years, but his lifelong commitment to Christ. So Camp understood what the Bible says when it says every good and perfect gift comes from above. He put the time in on the courts, but he realized that even that was a gift. His parents supported him by sending him to camps, by um, taking him to different training things. But again, he understood that that was a gift from God. He played college for a year at Link Year, so he didn't use a year of his eligibility, but that gave him more playing time. But he understood that all of that didn't matter and that what he was truly given was his his freedom bought by Christ. So I'm going to end with some questions to see if your success is, is sinful. What are you willing to do to succeed? Are you willing to work diligently? Are you willing to run the race with endurance? Those are biblical concepts. But Bible is also clear about lying, cheating, and stealing and what those say about our hearts. So I think if that is something you're tempted to, you need to confess that and um, ask for a change of heart is winning your idol. So I think a quick way to check this is how do you behave when you lose? Are you mad at the ump because he didn't call it a strike? Do you blame someone else on your team because they missed the game winning three? Do you question how that girl got that grade to get that class rank? Because I think that there's a lot, I hear that from y'all. Um, and I get that and it's frustrating, but it's something that it's, it becomes a part of our identity that we have to renounce and choose to, to see ourselves as Christ chooses us. Do you feel shame in yourself when the loss is on you, or do you take all the glory when you're the reason that you won? So by being gracious and encouraging to those around us, we are free to define ourselves and who we are in Christ, despite what the scoreboard may say. Um, and there, if, I don't know where I am on time, but there's a great website called, Chris said over, there's a great website called I Am Second, and it's famous people who are at the peak of what they've done. So there's Olympians. The newest video that just came out is Tyler from Dude Perfect, how they're at the peak of success and they say it's not worth it um, because of everything else that goes on. So Tyler and his wife just did a three-part series on Dude Perfect, but they're all Christians saying success is a lonely companion is what one of the people said. So that's me. Thank you. All right, Matt, how do we know when to end a friendship? Back to the first question you answered. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't have friends. No, okay. Um, <laughs> no, um, when to end a friendship. Um, to end a friendship doesn't mean you end to being friendly. Um, I, in my life, um, it's weird. So there, there, there's, there's a few aspects to this. As a, as a believer, if you're following Christ, um, you want friends that, what First Thessalonians 5 verse 11 says, encourage one another and build each other up, uh, just as in fact you are doing. So to, if, if you are looking around at your close, close group of friends, um, and they are not pulling you towards God, but they may be pulling you away, that, that doesn't mean you walk up to them and be like, hey, you and I, we're, we're never going to be friends. No, no, but it, you're there to shoulder each other's burdens. Um, when I was thinking through this question this week, uh, I thought about what friendship was, and friendship really is uh, the mutual love uh, and pursuit and willingness to bear each other's burdens. Um, so how do we know when to end a friendship? Um, if you make it very clear that you're pursuing God and they're very clear that they want to pull you away, 
then it's a time to step back from that friendship. Um, that hurts. Uh, one of my closest friends, um, I've known him since I was in fourth grade. Um, we went through that, uh, and I still text him every month, and I tell him I love him. I tell him I'm here for you. Um, but when it comes to a friendship where I'm seeking counsel, where I'm trying to make big life decisions, where I'm trying to navigate this world, I, I, no offense, I don't go to him. Um, and, I, and I don't know where I am on time, but um, I also think it's, it's fine. If y'all came from middle school, you're in high school, some of y'all will go post high school and on with life. Um, I think it's, it's really important to note that uh, some people are in your life for a sentence, some people are in it for a chapter, and some people are in it for the whole book. Um, I've had friends where I, I've wanted them in multiple chapters and life pulls them away. It doesn't mean I don't love them, doesn't mean I'm not their friend, but when it comes to true bearing each other's burdens and pursuing Christ, uh, sometimes you have to let that friendship grow and, and uh, go and grow with friendships that are around you. Um, so uh, that's all I got. Yeah. Thank you. All right. The final inning is upon us. So how do we reach people who've been hurt by the church? Catherine. Okay. Coming from someone who was seriously uprooted by a terribly incorrect application of church discipline when I was a teenager, how do we reach people who have been hurt, period? Okay. Um, I don't know. Is, she in, is Kim Ronsleben still in here? Did she step out? Okay. Well, she says, she says something um, when she's counseling people that's invaluable, and I want you guys to pick it up. I'm so sorry that happened to you. Okay, that phrase is going to really help the person that you're trying to help. Um, first thing is listen. Listen not to reply or defend, but listen to understand. And not only should you listen with your ears, but listen through the Spirit. You have Him in you to provide guidance at any given moment in any conversation, so lean on Him. Christ emulates an attitude of gentleness and humility, and He says so in Scripture. I am gentle and humble in heart. Emulate that. Be patient and take your time. Another point I want to make, when you're trying to reach somebody who has uh, been hurt by the church, be honest. I don't know is a complete thought, and it is a completely appropriate answer. If you don't know, be honest. Don't try to make things up um, and tell the truth. I say this because there are people who will claim church hurt because they were told a truth they did not want to hear or that they were not ready for. You may find after a long discussion or a series of discussions that the friend you're trying to help is seeking your affirmation about a stance that they hold that ignores the truth of the Bible. If they ask you for affirmation in sin, tell the truth. We cannot bring people back to God with lies. We have to be honest. Represent what you know to be true. Finally, pray for them like you believe God is listening to you. He is. He 100% is. And remember, it is not your responsibility to change lives and to turn things around for people. That honor, power, and glory belongs only to God. Only to God. It's not in your ballpark, and you're not, you're not, the, you're not the one. Um, however, Christians 
who walk in faith for real can prove a powerful tool in God's hand for redemption. Thank you. All right, to Chris. How do we know if something, in the, if something commanded in the Bible was only for that time or for today as well? So I love Twitter. Not really. But uh, whenever, you, whenever you get on there, you always see somebody make some type of statement of, of morality. And there will be a believer who will make an argument for being moral. And then once they make this argument for being moral, like, don't go out and sleep with whoever you want to sleep with. And then somebody will respond and be like, well, why don't you also not eat pork or eat shrimp? And why do you wear mixed clothing and stuff? And they're basically like, if you're going to follow a little bit of the Bible, why not follow the whole thing of the Bible? I chuckle at it because I'm like, man, this is so out of context. They don't even know what they're saying. So how do we know that... I can say something like this that, you know what, God doesn't want me to just go out and do whatever, but also know that, oh, but I can eat pork. I can have bacon for breakfast. Well, when we look at Scripture, we see that there are two different types of laws. First, we're going to start in the Old Testament under what was known as the Old Covenant. Uh, There is what's known as the ceremonial laws and what is known as the moral laws. Ceremonial laws will be things like, oh, you can't eat this type of food, uh, so no shellfish, no whatever hooves, this kind of hoof, no pork, no, okay, there's a lot. And then you can't wear this type of clothing, so you can't wear cotton mixed with polyester, whatever. There's a lot there. And so there's a lot that he says you can't do. These are what's known as a ceremonial law. Then there's moral law, like you can't, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not covet, things like that. So how do we know which ones we can obey and which ones are not to be obeyed? So when we look at the New Testament and what falls under what is known as the new covenant that Jesus establishes, uh, we see that Jesus came and he fulfilled the law. And when Jesus fulfilled the law, he did away with a lot of this. He did away with the ceremonial part of the law because he fulfilled it. We know the ceremonial part of the law was fulfilled because in uh, notes... Here we go. Uh, Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one. After Jesus is says it's finished, uh, the scene takes us to the temple where the veil is torn in two. The veil was in the temple separating us from the Father, and that was oh, you had to do all these ceremonial cleansings, sacrifices, and everything before you can even go into the Holy of Holies. Well, this has been removed because now we have access. We do not need to do these ceremonial things. Uh, other places we see is that. Uh, God shows Peter this, he brings on this in the dream, he brings on the sheet with all these animals in it, and he tells Peter to take and eat, and Peter's like, well, I'm not going to eat what's not clean, so like pigs and stuff like that. And then God tells Peter again, take and eat. He tells him three times to do it. And Peter's like, no, I don't, I'm not going to do that. Then God tells him, do not call unclean what I have made clean. So we see that God has made the ceremonial law, he has fulfilled that, we do not follow that anymore. But what we do follow is the moral law. So whenever we see things like thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not murder, they are repeated often throughout the New Testament. Uh, for example, they're repeated in Romans 1. They're repeated in Galatians 5. So if you ever have a question of what do I obey uh, out of the Scripture, what you see repeated in the New Testament, those are the laws that you are to still follow. Most often, that is, or all the time what we see, is it is the moral law. 
Thank you. Next question. Not sure how to do this in three minutes, but what does the Bible say about cursing? Okay, so the Bible says lots about cursing and swearing, but they don't use the, that word in the same way we use the curse words. So I want to focus on what the Bible says in general. Also, side note, just if, if the Bible says the H word, that does not give us freedom to just say it in any facet of our life. I'm not saying that from a place of conviction at all. So Ephesians 4.29 said, Words should be good for building up as fits the occasion, and that it may give grace to those who hear. Ephesians 5.4, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Matthew 5.22 tells us if we are angry with our brother, it's the same as murder, and we, when we speak ill of them, we are liable to the hell of fire. So I think what it's... It's in other places too. James 3, Luke 6, 2 Timothy 2, Colossians. The importance of our words is all throughout Scripture. So, one of the articles I read said profanity is not about the number of letters in a word, it's about the way we speak, the way we treat, talk about, or fail to revere or enjoy people and the things God has created. This verse is hanging on my bedroom wall because I struggle with it. Um, but Philippians 4.8 gives us questions to ask before we speak, and it's a way to filter our thoughts um, before they come out of our mouths. So before they are words that we say, usually to another person, usually my husband. So if you're using that verse to ask questions, is it true? Is it honorable? Is it just? Is it pure? Is it lovely? Is it commendable? Is it praiseworthy? And if not, I'd think again before you say it. So when I'm frustrated, usually I want to use my words to hurt him. But scripture is clear that we are to, our words are to give life to one another. So it, I need to learn a lesson to shut my mouth for a second and take a deep breath and think through these things. If I have an issue with Chris, it is, it's okay to talk about those things so that we can have a healthy marriage. It is not okay for me to use my words to harm him, to belittle him, to call out sins in his life so that I look better, um, but that's what we do. And another question I think we should be asking is, does using this word make me look like the world? Because if it does, then I think we need to change how we say that or what we say. I can be truthful at the expense of love, and I say truthful because it's my truth that I'm right and that everyone else around me is wrong. My cousin told me one time that truth without love is brutality, but love without truth is heresy. So we have to walk that line of truth and love, kind of like what Catherine was saying, um, that we, we have to be careful about the words that we say, because when I'm speaking, I'm representing what the Bible says and what, what Jesus would say to the world. So it's great that you're speaking truth to one another, but I will always count, well, I told her the truth. Great, were you kind? because that's where my heart is gonna come back and, and work on that sanctification with you. Is crude joking, crude joking hurting your witness? Are you encouraging to those that are around us? It, it's an ever going fight of something that I have to consciously choose how to do. And in the process, it sanctifies my heart. Um, it's not just life-giving to the person, usually Chris. Um, it is life-giving to me as well. And I, if you need a minute, take a minute and that's fine. I will also say, to my junior girls, one in particular, that choosing to not cuss does not mean we are going to start saying what the sus when everything is questioned. Right, Riley? So this is, this is something that we work on. And even amongst my friends, and we, we say that, I told you I was going to call you out if you keep saying what the sus. So that's my answer. Be careful before you open your mouth and take a second to breathe. Thank you. All right, last question. 
Boom. If someone changes their pronouns or name, do we call them by their new name and pronouns? Um, I got to be wise with what I say. Um, so, okay. I'm just going to say, I, I was in y'all's seats literally 10 years ago. I was sitting here in the outback uh, in high school, and it was a completely, uh, completely different world, in all honesty. Um, that there, this wouldn't have been a question 10 years ago. Um, and I, and I, we, when approaching it, it's, it's important to note that there are two questions in this one question, pronouns and name. Um, and I, in regards to the name, I mean, it, there's people that pick up nicknames. Um, I've had a friend called Bubba. I've had a friend called Pojo, and his name was Paul. Um, I, <laughs> I was so confused. Um, <laughs> but I, when it comes to, your, to, to whatever you want to be called name-wise, uh, for sure. I, 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 that, that is not something... Um, that is not something I'm going to to debate over. Pronouns. Um, here we go. So, um, I would I if if you are a believer and you're pursuing Christ, and I truly truly love you, I will not lie to you. Um, I, I I will try to avoid using your. It will, if you do prefer, prefer a certain pronoun over something else, I'll try to avoid it. Um, if, for the sake of me loving you, for the sake of me being around you, and for the sake of me not hurting you. Um, but in, in regards to uh, if I was ever asked by somebody, well, why do, why do you not refer to me as a certain pronoun? Um, I, would be, I would say I cannot lie to you um, because I love you. And I, I think that's that's the most important thing. And it this uh, and I know I'm, I, this is kind of a hard subject. I know I'm, I have to tread lightly. And in a world that says my truth, that there is no such thing as my truth. There is the truth. And it, when you are going through life, especially now, especially in a day where uh, there is a a different version of love that is not truly love and that is being pushed on y'all that is and, and it's something that really needs to be there's only one love and, and that's the love of God and, and and you can't back down from that that his grace his love his compassion is the anchor that's going to hold you through this life and the the culture wars and all that stuff is going to toss you along the sea but if you have that anchor in the ground that is his word that is the gospel that is the truth the truth not my truth the truth uh, then you will, uh, you will get through life storms, and uh, you will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. That's all I have. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for our, our panel discussion. Our panelists did a wonderful job. Um, and thank you guys for asking such great questions. Uh, we really saw this whole series, when you think of the, the writings of Paul, he didn't just write the same letter to every church. He could have just copy and pasted and just sent the same thing to everybody. But what he did was he was trying to respond to their questions or their concerns or things that they were dealing with 
whether it's theologically or whether it's just practically in their church. And so that's why he wrote different letters to different churches, um, sometimes saying similar things, but also some different things. And so that's really what's been driving the series is taking your questions and things that you're thinking about and dealing with, and how can we bring the scriptures to bear on those questions? So we really appreciate you guys and also these guys up here for helping us with today. So give them a hand once again. And so now uh, 